Continuing silence, we are on chapter 2, letter of Sebastian Rodriguez. The peace of God, glory to Christ. Within the space of one short letter, I don't know how to speak about the innumerable events that have crowded into my life in the past two months. Moreover, in my present state, I do not even know if this letter will ever reach you. But my mood is such that I just cannot keep from writing, for I feel the duty of leaving you something written down. For eight days after leaving Macau, our ship was blessed with extraordinarily fine weather. The sky was clear and blue, the sail bellied out in the wind. We could see the shoals of flying fish gleaming like silver as they leapt out of the waves. Every morning, Garapa and I offered mass on board ship, giving thanks to God for our safe passage. But it was not long until we hit up against our first storm. It was May 6th when a strong wind began to blow from the southeast. The sailors were men of experience. They took down the sail and put up a smaller one in the front of the ship. But now it was dead of night, and the only thing possible was to abandon our ship to the wind and the waves. Meanwhile, in the front of the ship, a great rift was opened, and the water began to pour in. For almost the whole night long, we worked at stuffing cloth into the rift and bailing out the water. Just as dawn was breaking, the storm ceased. The sailors, as well as Garapa and myself, in utter exhaustion, could, ne- could only throw ourselves down between the bales of luggage and stare up at the thick black rain clouds floating off to the east. There arose in my heart the thought of St. Francis Xavier. He also, in the calm of which followed such a storm, must have looked up at the milky sky. And then, for the next eighty years, how many missionaries and seminarians had sailed around the coast of Africa, passed by India, and had crossed over this very sea to preach the gospel in Japan. There had been Bishop Shikina, there had been Fontana, Gomez, Lopez, Gregorio. If one began to count them, there was no limit. And among them there was some, like Gil de Mata, who met their fate in a sinking ship with their eyes fixed on Japan. Now I have some idea of the tremendous emotion that filled their breasts and enabled them to endure this awful suffering. All these great missionaries gazed at both the milky clouds and the thick black rain clouds floating away to the east. What thoughts filled their minds at such times? This also I can well imagine. Beside the ship's baggage was Kichijiro. I could hear his voice. During the storm, this pitiful coward made almost no attempt to help the sailors, and now, wretchedly pale, he lay between the baggage. Splashed all around him was white vomit, and he kept muttering something in Japanese. With the sailors, we looked at the, we looked at the fellow with contempt. We were too exhausted to be interested in his stammering Japanese, but quite by accident, jumbled in with his sentences, I caught the words Gracia and Santa Maria. This fellow, who was just like a pig that buried its face in its own vomit, had without a doubt uttered twice the words Santa Maria. What's Santa Maria? St. Mary. Oh. So he's basically, the big question is, is he a Christian? Right? Yeah. And he keeps saying he's not a Christian, but... But now Rodriguez is saying, no, he's definitely saying this. I heard it. And what's Gracia? Um, I'll probably have to look it up, but I'm guessing it's probably something related to thank you or something like that. Garape and I exchanged glances. Was it possible that he was of our faith? This wretch who all through the journey not only failed to help, but was even a positive nuisance. No, it was impossible. Faith could not turn a man into such a coward. Mm-hmm. Raising up. What do you think about that line? Faith could not turn a man into such a coward. I don't know. I feel like that's what people who take religion to the extreme might think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, hold on in your mind, hold on to that line, because we'll be revisiting that issue. Raising up his face, filthy with his own vomit, Kichijiro turned on us a glance of pain. And then, with his usual cunning, he made a pretense of not understanding the questioning looks we fixed on him. He smiled his cowardly smile. He was the most fawning, obsequious laugh. Oh, he has the most fawning, obsequious laugh you could possibly imagine. It always leaves a bad taste in our mouth. So how are they describing him? What is he like? He's just this person, a people pleaser. Yeah. He just sucks up he's people. really, really fake, and they can't stand it. Like, to them, it's obvious how fake he is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm asking a question, said Grappe, raising his voice. Give me a clear answer. Are you or are you not a Christian? Kichijiro shook his head vigorously. The Chinese sailors from their place between the bales of luggage looked at the whole affair with a mixture of curiosity and contempt. If Kichijiro were a Christian, why did he go so far as to conceal the whole affair even from us priests? My guess was that his cow this cowardly fellow was afraid lest on returning to Japan we might give him over to the officials, revealing the fact that he was a Christian. On the other hand, if he was not really a Christian, how explain the terror with which the words Gracia and Santa Maria rose to his lips? Anyhow, the fellow intrigues me. I feel sure that bit by bit I will come to learn his secret. Until this day, there is no sign of land, no trace of an island. The gray sky stretched out endlessly, and sometimes the rays of the sun struck the ship so feebly as to be heavy on the eyelids. Overcome with depression, we just kept our eyes fixed on the clouds, on the, on the cold sea where the teeth of the waves flashed like white buds, but God did not abandon us. Quite suddenly, a sailor who had been lying like dead in the stern of the ship raised a loud cry. There from the horizon toward, towards which his finger pointed, a bird came flying. And this tiny bird, which flew across the ocean, came to rest on the sail, rent and torn by the storm of the previous night. Next, countless twigs came floating along the surface of the water. This indeed was proof that the land for which we longed so ardently was not far away. But our joy quickly changed to alarm. If this was really Japan, we must make sure not to be seen, even by the smallest vessel. The sailors on such a ship would doubtless hasten at once to tell the officials that a junk containing foreigners was drifting on the waves off the coast. Grappe and I crouched amidst the luggage like a couple of dogs as we waited for darkness to come. The sailors put up a small sail in front of the ship, and they made a brave attempt to keep clear of the pieces of land that looked like mainland. Midnight came. The ship moved forward noiselessly. Fortunately, there was no moon. The sky was jet black. No one found us. The mainland rose up before us. We noticed, that we, were entered, we noticed that we were entering right into a harbor on both sides of which steep mountains arose. And now we could also see clumps of houses huddled together beyond the strand. Kichijiro was the first to wade ashore. Next came myself, and last of all, Garape got into the, icky, into the icy cold water. Was this Japan, or was it an island belonging to some other <coughs> some other country? Frankly, none of us had any idea. We hid silently in a tiny hollow while Kichijiro went off to explore the situation. The sound of footsteps on the sand came near to where we crouched. As we clutched our wet clothes and held our breath, we saw passing just before us the figure of an old woman with a cloth on her head and a basket on her back. She did not notice our presence and went on her way. Her departing footsteps faded into the night, and once again the deadly silence descended on the shore. He won't come back. He won't come back, exclaimed Grappe tearfully. Where has he gone, the weak-minded coward? But I was thinking of a more terrible fate. He had not fled. 
Like Judas, he had gone to betray us. Soon he would appear again, and with him would be the guards. A band of soldiers went there with lanterns and torches and weapons of Grappe quoting the scriptures. We reflected on the night at Gethsemane. Gethsemane. What is it? Gethsemane. Gethsemane? Yeah. Gethsemane, when our Lord trusted himself without reserve to the hands of men. But the time dragged on so slowly that my <coughs> spirit was almost crushed. It was fearful indeed. The perspiration flowed down my forehead and into my eyes. And then came the sound of footsteps. A group of people was approaching. The light of their torches burned dismally in the dark, and they came closer and closer. So, so what's the point he's being made here? Um, uh, at Gethsemane, this is where Jesus, alayhi salam, um, it's basically the right before he's about to get betrayed. Okay? And he's putting himself in the trust of his disciples uh, who, who abandon him. Um, not necessarily betray him, but abandon him. And, and yet he persists forward, right? And then most of those disciples regretted, the key one being Peter. Later on, shortly after that, he gets um, the betrayal by Judas. And so they're looking at these stories to persist in faith, and, but he's saying, you know, by the time, by the, but time dragged on so slowly, my spirit was almost crushed. Right. Think about like you know, the way we would use Surah Yusuf to help us get through difficult times or something, or remember things about the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his struggles. And that's what he's trying to do, but time is just moving too slowly for him. Yeah. Someone thrust a torch forward, and in its light there appeared the ugly face, both red and black, of a small old man, while around him five or six young men with frightened eyes looked down on us. Padre, Padre. The old man made the sign of the cross as he uttered the words, and in his voice there was a gentle note of solicitude for our plight. As for us, this Padre, spoken in our own beloved Portuguese tongue, was something we had never dreamt of hearing in this place. Needless to say, the old man could not know more Portuguese than this. But before our eyes, he made the sign of the cross, showing a bond of something that held us together. These, indeed, were Japanese Christians. All in a whirl, I stood up in the sand. At last, I had set foot on Japanese soil. The and the realization of this fact swept over me with tremendous force. So they're about to give up. And then this old man comes along. He's saying, Padre, Padre. And he's now, and he's also doing the sign of the cross. So they found Japanese Christians just as they were giving up. Kichijiro was cowering behind the others with that servile smile of his. He always looks just like a mouse, ready to scamper off at the slightest thing. I bit my lip with shame. Our Lord had entrusted himself to anybody because he loved all men. And here I was with such a feeling of distrust toward this one man, Kichijiro. So you see that? So he's saying, our Lord, meaning Jesus, alayhi salam, he loved everyone, so he entrusted himself to anyone. But here I am, Rodriguez. Uh, I can't. I can't bring myself to trust Kichijiro. I find Kichijiro so wretched. So what we're seeing is a problem in his faith. Right? He's this Jesuit who should be super in terms of his faith, but he's supposed to love everybody. But he hates Kichijiro. He finds him disgusting. And on the other hand, you know, his faith keeps getting weak every time time just keeps moving forward.
makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly, keep walking. It was the old man who was talking, and he urged us on with a whisper. We can't afford to be seen by the Gentiles. The Gentiles, another word from our language known to the Christians. Our forebears from the time of Xavier taught them these words. What sweat and toil it had taken to plunge the spade into this barren soil, then to fertilize it, to cultivate it until it reached this present stage. Okay, so there, what is he talking about? You know, how much effort did it take um, for Xavier... Um, who came many, many years earlier to, uh, in terms of preaching and bringing Christianity to spade the barren soil so there was no Christianity, then to fertilize it, then to cultivate it until it reached its present stage, right? So just reflecting on how much history there is in terms of the uh, efforts of Christians to bring Christianity to Japan. Yes, the seed had been sown. It sprouted forth with vigor. And now it was the great mission of grappling myself to tend to it, lest it wither and die. That night they kept us in hiding beneath the low ceiling of their house. Nearby was a barn from which the stench was carried to where we lay. They assured us, however, that there was no danger. But how had Kichijiro been able to find the Christians so quickly? The next day, while it was still dark, Grappa and I changed into peasants' clothes, and together with the young men who had met us on the previous day, we climbed up a mountain which lay behind the village. The Christians wanted to keep us hidden there. They, they had a safer place there, a charcoal hut. Thick, thick mist lay over the woods and over the path along which we walked. Eventually, this mist turned into light rain. Arrived at our destination, we heard for the first time about the place in which we now found ourselves. It was a fishing village called Tomogi, not far from Nagasaki. It continued about two hundred. Oh, it contained about two hundred households, and the greater number of the villagers had already received baptism. And how are things now? I asked. Yes, Father. It was Mokichi who spoke, a young man who accompanied us, and looking back at his friend. Now we can do nothing, he went on. If it is found out that we are Christians, we will all be killed. How shall I describe the joy that filled their faces when we gave them crucifixes that we had, that we had, had around our necks? Both of them bowed to the very ground, and pressing the crucifixes to their foreheads, spent a long time in adoration. Apparently they had not... Apparently they had not had such crucifixes for many, many years. Okay, so, so now try to, try to imagine these, these Japanese. They're villagers. They have nothing, literally nothing. And they're so full of joy when they see these, these Jesuits arrive. And they're so full of joy when the, Jesuit, the Jesuits are giving them their crucifixes. And as we go through, compare and contrast the faith of the Jesuits who are coming armed with so much knowledge, with these villagers who have very, very little knowledge. And it's going to seem over and over again like the villagers have much more faith. Okay. Is it possible that we have a priest in our midst? <clears throat> Mokichi held my hand clasped in his as he spoke, and what about brothers? Needless to say, these people had met neither priest nor brother for six years. Until six years ago, a Japanese priest, Miguel Matsuda, and a Jesuit brother, Matteo de Coros, had secretly kept in contact with this village and its immediate surroundings. But in November 1633, worn out by labor and suffering, they had both passed to their reward. But what has happened during these six years? What about baptism and the sacraments? It was Grappe who, had, who asked the question, and the answer of Mokichi stirred us to the very depths of our being. Indeed, I want through you to convey to my superiors what he said. 
and not only to my superiors, but to the whole church in Rome. As he spoke, I recalled the words of the gospel that some seed fell upon ground, upon good ground, and springing up it brought forth fruit, some tenfold, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundredfold. For the fact is that with neither priests nor brothers, and in the throes of a terrible persecution at the hands of the government, they secretly made their own organization for the administration of the sacraments. And so they kept alive their faith. So even under this threat, <coughs> they're keeping the community going. Right? And they even have, like he's saying, they have set up their own organization uh, for the administration of the sacraments. Right? So that's a little bit different than us. Um, so they, they had to set up a whole system to be able to perform mass and to do it quietly while they are at risk of, of persecution, right? Or it could be like somebody praying but not really, like they didn't know how to properly pray but they still yeah. keep praying because they want to have that connection. Yeah, exactly. Or all they know is how to pray. Like all they know, let's say, is how to do fudger. And so they just keep doing it. For example, in Tomogi, this organization was set up more or less as follows. From the Christians, one of the older men was chosen to play the role of the priest. I'm simply writing to you without any embellishment what Mokichi said to me. The old man we met yesterday at the shore, they called him Jisama, holds the highest post of authority. He leads a blameless, a blameless life, and the task of baptizing the children is entrusted to him. Beneath Beneath the Jisama is a group of men known as Tosama, whose job it is to teach the Christians and to lead them in prayer. Then there are helpers known as Nideshi. All are engaged in this life-and-death struggle to keep the faith alive. And all this goes on only in Tomogi. Tomoji? Tomogi? I ask the question with some enthusiasm. I suppose other villages are preserving their faith in the same way and with the same kind of organization. This time, Mokichi shook his head. Only afterwards did I realize that in this country, where blood relationship is of such primary importance, the people of one village, though closely united among themselves like one family sometimes, sometimes go so far as to look with hostility on the people, peoples of other villages. Yes, Father, I can only speak for the people of our own village. Too much contact with other villages might end up in accusation before the magistrate. But I begged Mokichi and his friends to look for Christians in the other villages also. I felt that as quickly as possible, word should be sent out that once again a priest, crucifix in hand, had come to this desolate and abandoned land. From that time, our life has become more or less as follows. At dead of night, we offer mass, just as they did in the catacombs. And then when morning comes, we climb the mountain again and wait in hiding for any of the Christians who may want to visit us. Every day, two of them bring to us our ration of food. We hear confessions, give instructions, teach them how to pray. During the day, we keep the door of our tiny hut tightly closed, and we refrain from making the slightest noise, lest anyone passing outside may hear. Needless to say, it is out of question to build a fire, lest any trace of smoke be seen. And then, just in case, foreseeing every contingency, Mokichi and his friend have dug a kind of cave under the very floor of our hut. It is not impossible that there are still Christians in the villages and islands west of Tomogi, but under the circumstances, we cannot so much as stir outside our hut during the day, and yet I am determined, come what may, to seek out and find the lonely and abandoned flock. Okay, so that's where we are now. So they're staying in this hut with this cave underneath, 
that if someone's coming by, they can hide, uh, hide inside it. And they're still going to see if there's other you know, Christians in the area. Any other questions or thoughts? Inshallah. Alright. Subhanakallahumma bihamdukana shadwilla ilaha ila anta nasakirikana tubi ilaik wa akhir dawan alhamdulillah.